I'm exhausted. Oh, those are wonderful truths to sing about. And even better that they're true. If you have your Bibles, open up to James chapter 1. One quick encouragement before we jump into James. Uh, there's a men's conference coming up uh, in just over a month. March 17th and 18th, uh, my dear friend, Pastor Tony Arns, uh, is a church planter of a church up in Folsom, and he's going to be our speaker for that men's conference. So if you're a man, I would really encourage you to come. You will not be disappointed. Uh, the preaching will be wonderful. I'm sure your hearts will be encouraged. It'll be a great time of fellowship. So next month, March 17th, 18th, you can sign up in the lobby. You can sign up online, and it should be just a wonderful time. Uh, James chapter 1, you know, one of the things that our family likes to do uh, is we like to go on road trips. You know, we like to go to kind of different places, maybe out by the coast or maybe kind of do a state park or something like that so we can go on hikes and enjoy time in nature. Uh, But if you've ever been to those places, sometimes the roads to get there are a little bit windy. Uh, And there's a couple members of our family that suffer a little from motion sickness Uh, And so that's going to be a little treacherous, you know, kind of every twist and turn, every up and down through the road can be a little difficult. But one of the strategies that we like to use when we're in those situations is rather than look at every twist and turn that's coming up in the road, you try to find something off in the distance, something that's not changing, something that's not moving. You know, maybe it's a mountain or something or a big tree somewhere off in the distance. And if you focus on that, rather than on every twist and turn in the road, it helps you to not get so motion sick. You know, I think that the Christian life is a little bit like that. There's a lot of twists and turns and ups and downs in the course of the Christian life, but if you just keep looking at all the twists and turns and ups and downs, you're liable to kind of get sick. And so what do you need to do when there's twists and turns and ups and downs? Focus on something off in the distance that doesn't change. And the thing that James wants to encourage us through this text this morning is that you can trust and fix your attention on the unchanging goodness of God. So in the midst of the trial, when you're tempted to sort of have tunnel vision, where all I can see is how I don't like this situation that I'm in, turn your gaze up and focus on the unchanging goodness of God. Look at verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. That's where James wants us to focus. In the midst of our trials, in the midst of our difficulties, focus on the unchanging God. Let's pray and we'll look at this. Father, um, trials are difficult. There's no getting around it. I mean, the very reason they are trials is because we don't like them. We wish we didn't have to go through them. We wish that they would be over quickly. And yet, and sometimes when we're in the midst of them, we actually are tempted to think that you've changed. That you're not being good to us anymore. Or that maybe we did something wrong and you're punishing us for something we did. But that's not who you are. You're the father of lights who only knows how to give good and perfect gifts. And so if we come to a trial in our life, 
We can trust that it's coming from your good hand. And that's hard to do. It's hard to do because trials are painful. Trials hurt. Trials cause us anxiety, and we don't know if, if and when they're going to end or how. But may we focus on you. And may you even give us joy in the midst of our trials, knowing that they're coming from you. And they are part of your good and perfect gifts. For this, we need your help. It's humanly impossible to have this perspective apart from your help. So help us this morning. Encourage us through your word. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. So James is going to outline four different ways that you can trust God in the midst of your trials. And the first is this. Rejoice in his purpose. Verse 2, chapter 1. Count it all joy, my brothers, when you meet trials of various kinds. For you know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And let steadfastness have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Right? He's, this is James. He's writing to this group of people. They're spread out. They're being persecuted. They're in hard situations. They're in the midst of trials. And he opens this letter. First two words after he gives his greeting is this. All joy. Consider it. My brothers and sisters. Now, if you were writing a letter, what would you expect to fill in after that, right? Consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, that God saved you. Okay, yeah, that would be, I would expect something like that. Consider it all joy that Jesus laid down his life for you. Consider it all joy that God loves you and sent his son to rescue you. How does James start this letter? Consider it all joy, my brothers and sisters, when you encounter various trials. What? The toddler who just learned how to say no and doesn't want to eat his food. Consider it joy. Maybe on the other end of the spectrum, you just got that news from the doctor that you were desperately not wanting to hear. Consider it all joy. You just got laid off from work. Consider it joy. You just had a terrible conflict in a series of conflicts with a rebellious child. Consider it all joy. James, like, what are you talking about? There's nothing joyful about any of those things. I don't want trials in my life. And the last thing I want to do is consider them joy. But James is going to show that God's using the trials of your life for a good purpose. Now, this doesn't mean that joy is the only emotion that you have in the midst of a trial. Right? When you get sad news, you can be sad. If you get that report from the doctor, and the doctor says, it looks like you have months, you can be sad. You don't have to just put a smile on your face and fake it. You can be sad, but you can also be joyful. This also doesn't mean that the trial itself is enjoyable, right? We're not masochists, right? There's nothing enjoyable about sickness, sadness, uncertainty. Sometimes the trials we're in, they're a result of somebody else's heinous sin against us. And there's nothing joyful about that person's sin. 
against us. But God says you can have joy even in the process, even when life is hard, because he's at work in the midst of the trial. And so how can you have joy in the midst of a trial? That's what he's going to talk about, verse 3. He says, count it all joy, verse 3, because you know something. What do you know? You know that the testing of your faith produces steadfastness. And steadfastness has a work to do. In verse 4, let steadfastness have its full effect, and the end result of this trial is what? That you may be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. That's why you can have joy in the midst of your trials. Because God's using it to make you perfect and complete. I mean, the illustration is that like of a sculptor, right? God is the master artist and his hammer and chisel on you, the block of marble, is the trial. And he's going to use that trial to chip away everything that doesn't belong there. Everything that's not good for you. So that at the end of the whole process, you're going to look more like him. Sometimes he's got to use a big hammer and a big chisel. And he's going to, he might have to wail away at a certain area until that rock kind of finally comes off. Other times, it might be the sandpaper that just smooths out just those rough edges that still remain on your life. This is how God uses trials. They're not punishments. They're actually mercies and graces that he puts in your life to make you more like him. One of the biggest trials that God used in my life was my dad was diagnosed with a brain tumor on my 17th birthday, and he passed away right before I graduated high school. That was a big hammer and a big chisel. But God used it in my life. That's probably the most kind of one event that I can point to. That's where he started to do a work in my heart to save me. In the last several years, a few years ago, I had four mentors, four of the most kind of influential people in my life. And within just a few year span, two of them moved away and two of them passed away. But God was using it, chiseling away things in my life so that I could be more useful to him. That's what God does through trials. He shapes us. He molds us. He sculpts us as a master artist so that we become the best versions of ourselves. How many of you have prayed a prayer asking God to make you a better father or a better mother or a better spouse or a better friend or that you pray that God would make you more useful in his kingdom? Well, guess what? The trial that you're going through right now may very well be the answer to that prayer. Shaping you, molding you into the thing that you want to become for his sake. And even though trials are difficult, they are the cause for great joy. Because God's doing a work 
You're becoming a better version of yourself, more and more pleasing to him. Robert Browning Hamilton, he wrote a poem called Along the Road. It says this, I walked a mile with pleasure. She chattered all the way, but left me none the wiser for all she had to say. I walked a mile with sorrow. In narrow words, said she, but oh, the things I learned from her when sorrow walked with me. That's what God's doing when your trials. You're walking with sorrow so that you might learn things that you could never have learned had life been pleasant all along the way. That's why Solomon says it's better to be at a funeral than to be at a party. You're not going to learn much at the party about you, about him, about what life's all about. But you learn a lot in sorrow. So don't short-circuit the process by not having joy in the midst of your trials. That's what James is saying. You have to have a mindset where as hard as it is, as painful as it is, I trust that God is doing something good. And I can have joy even when it hurts. And that's the key to joy in trials is that you have to actually value maturity more than comfort. You have to value becoming more like Christ over ease and convenience and life going just the way that you want. And sometimes that's hard for us. Some of us might say, well, I'd rather be immature and have a trial-free life if it was up to me. But God knows that's not best for you. And that's not best for his purposes. And so he's going to put trials in your life to teach you about him and about yourself. 2 Peter 1, 8 through 10 talks about how if God is maturing your character over time, that the end result will be that you are fruitful and that you will never fall. And so that maturity is of great value to you. Maturity is also of great value to you because it glorifies God. 1 Peter 1, 6 and 7 talks about that you're encountering trials so that the tested genuineness, genuineness of your faith, which he says is more precious than gold, might be found to result in praise and glory and honor going to him. And so trials, God maturing you through trials is a way that he ends up being glorified. Right? Think about Job. Job was a man who lost everything. Right? His whole family, his, all his kids were taken away. They died. All his possessions taken away. His wife was spared, but then his wife says, well, why don't you just curse God and die? And Job doesn't know what's going on behind the scenes, right? We do. We get to read the story. We get to see that, you know, Satan came to God and God said, like, you're not allowed to touch him. You're not allowed to kill him. But what was Satan's accusation? He only loves you because you give him everything that he wants. And if you started taking those things away, what's Job going to do? He's going to curse you to your face. And what happens? God lets Satan take them away. Take those things away. Why? Because it's going to show 
that Job doesn't love God just because God gives him everything he wants. Job loves God because of who God is. And if he takes everything from me, I'm not going to curse him to his face because he's good and he's loving and he is my redeemer. It could be that the trials that you're going through right now, they are a divine stage for all of those around you to show that God is of supreme value. That when everything's falling apart, you're not going to say, I don't know what God's doing. You're not going to walk away. You're going to say, I'm going to trust him anyway. Because he's only good. He's good if I get nothing out of this life because I'm looking forward to eternity with him. So consider it joy when you encounter various trials because God's doing a good work in you. Now, trials are difficult, and sometimes we don't know which way to turn. So the second thing that James wants us to do when we're in the midst of a trial is ask for wisdom. Ask for his wisdom. Look at the end of verse 4. The end result of this trial is that you would be perfect and complete, lacking in nothing. Verse 5, if any of you lacks wisdom. Right? So that you're in the midst of this trial. You find, I am lacking something. I'm lacking the wisdom to know how to navigate this trial. So what does James say to do? Let him ask God, who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given to him. But let him ask in faith with no doubting. For the one who has doubts is like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. That person must not suppose that he will receive anything from the Lord. He is a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. So James is envisioning you're in the midst of this trial. You're saying, I'm going to trust you, Lord. I'm going to have joy in the midst of this trial, but I don't know what to do. And so he says, ask. Ask God to give you wisdom, to know how to navigate this trial. And what does he say God is like? God is the one who gives generously to all without reproach, and it will be given. If you need wisdom, you go to God. God, he loves to give wisdom. So what is giving you? What is wisdom? Well, wisdom's a little bit different than knowledge, right? Knowledge is I, I know all the facts. Wisdom is I have the ability to take all of these facts and apply them in a beautiful way right? Think of it like this. There's facts you know about a bear, right? A bear is a big animal. They can actually run kind of fast. They have big claws. They have big teeth. So those are all the facts that you know. That's the knowledge that you have about a bear. But wisdom says, because of all these facts, I'm going to apply it in a most beautiful way that I'm never going camping, <laughs> right? That's knowledge applied to life. Bear, scary, no camping, wisdom, or think of it like this. Let's say you have a strained relationship with a family member. There's things that you know. You know, blessed are the peacemakers. You know, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. But what do I do in this situation? Right? How do I take the things that I know and apply them right now? I mean, do I send a letter do I go for and visit them? 
Do I kind of give, give it maybe a little bit of time? Right? Those aren't right and wrong questions. Those are wisdom questions. How do I apply the truth of what I know to this particular situation? And that's what James is talking about. You're in the midst of this trial. You know a lot of things. But how do I take what I know and apply it to this situation? He says, if that's the situation you're in, ask God, and God delights to give that kind of wisdom. He gives generously. He's going to pour it out on you. And he gives it without reproach. Don't feel bad asking God for wisdom. He's not going to look down on you for asking. He's actually going to delight that you're asking. And he's going to pour out his wisdom on you so that you know how to navigate all of the twists and turns of the trial that you're in. But he does give one condition in verse 6. He says, let him ask in faith. What does he mean by that? I don't think he means, like, let him ask in faith, believing that God will give an answer, right? Faith in the book of James is all about action. Like, if you really have faith, your life is going to look different. So when he says, let him ask in faith, I think what he's saying is, let him ask, believing that when God reveals his wisdom, I'm going to do it. That's what he's saying. And I think James is getting at a key question that comes up when you're in the midst of a trial. Do you want deliverance or do you want wisdom? Do you want God to fix the problem or do you want God to fix you? Because think back, right? What's this all about? It's about that God has a purpose in trials. And his purpose might not be that he's just going to let you out of it immediately. His purpose very well may be that I'm going to mature you through this process. So what do you want? Do you just want to get out of it? Or do you want to learn what God wants you to learn through it? And I think that's what James is talking about. That I'm going to ask God for wisdom and I'm going to do whatever he reveals. I'm going to live it out. You know, I've run into several situations recently where people who say they're Christians, they have no problem rejecting God's wisdom. Right? They'll say, I'm a sinner, I need salvation, Jesus died for me. But, you know, this verse about this over here, it's like, I don't really believe that. Or, I mean, I know that God's word says this, but, I mean, I'm just going to do, I'm going to do what I want. Let me ask you something. Could you have solved the problem of your sin? Could you have come up with the idea that there needs to be a triune God and that there has to be a father who loves a son and then there has to be a son who needs to go and that, that son is going to become a man and he's going to live a perfect life and he's going to go to the cross and he's going to die for your sin so that all the punishment that was due you actually fell on him. And so God can be just and the justifier of all those who put their faith in him. Could you have come up with that? No. Right? Who, what did it take to come up with that plan? It took infinite wisdom, infinite love, infinite mercy, infinite grace, infinite humility to plan your salvation. 
And out of that infinite love and grace and mercy and humility, God sent his son to pay for your sins. And out of that same infinite mercy and grace and love and humility, he gave you his word. And he gives you his wisdom. Don't be a person who rejoices in his salvation, but despises his wisdom. It's coming from the same heart. Everything that you love about your Savior, everything you love about the Father for sending his Son, he did the same thing when he sent his word and his wisdom. Don't anticipate that I can just take the one and reject the other. First, it's not only will it not work, but why would you if it's coming from the same heart? James describes the people that are like that in verse 6. The one who doubts, the one who receives what God says but doesn't do it, he's like a wave of the sea that is driven and tossed by the wind. Verse 8, he's a double-minded man, unstable in all his ways. I mean, if you're a person that will receive his salvation but not his word, he says, you're going to be like this little boat that just gets thrown out into the middle of the ocean and you're just carried along in every single direction. My family, or Rhonda and I went on a fishing trip, our one and only fishing trip. Uh, one time, we took these two little boats off the coast. We were with some friends. You know, we're in one boat with some friends and there's another boat. And it was a windy day. And we're off the coast, and, you know, I'm looking to the, my friends in the other boat, and they're up there on a wave, and I'm down here at the bottom of a wave, and then a couple more minutes later, we're up there, and they're down here, and it was just, I mean, it was dizzying and sick, and I'm not even a person who gets motion sick, but I was like, all right, we got to turn this boat around. I'm never going, doing this ever again. God says, that's what your life is going to be like if you don't receive his wisdom. You're going to be tossed in every direction because there's going to be people with opinions about you're in this situation you're wanting to know what to do and this person is going to say well you should do this and this person is going to say no you should do that no you should do it this way no you should just cut them off you don't need to you know be nice to your family anymore do this do this do this and you'll be like that little boat tossed every which way and he says in verse 7 if you're a person like that that you must not suppose that you will receive anything from the Lord. If you don't want to do what he says, you shouldn't anticipate that he's going to tell you what to do. Why would he? And so ask for wisdom. When you're in the midst of a trial, ask for wisdom. But be ready to do what God asks you to do. Right? We don't want to be the double-minded person who's, you know, I'm, I'm in this financial crisis you know, I'm reading God's word and I'm talking to godly counsel and it comes across that I'm, it's almost like I'm hearing God's voice say, sell your pickup truck and buy a used Hyundai. Now, nah, I want to, but I love my truck. I'm not going to do that. Or you're in this situation where I really hate that this person's mad at me. So someone tells you or you're reading in the word, so go and ask for their forgiveness. Yeah, but they hurt me. And I'm not going to go talk to them until they talk to me. That's double-minded. I want God's help, but I don't want to have to do anything that I don't want to do. And so we want to ask in faith. 
when you're in the midst of that trial, ask for wisdom. God will give it if you want to do it and trust him. Thirdly, we need to have his perspective. Adopt his perspective in trials. Verses 9 through 11 says, Let the lowly brother boast in his exaltation and the rich in his humiliation because like a flower of the grass he will pass away. For the sun rises with its scorching heat and withers the grass. Its flower falls and its beauty perishes. So also will the rich man fade away in the midst of his pursuits. Right, what's James saying? James is saying in the midst of your trials, you need to have an eternal perspective. As human beings, we generally do a terrible job at keeping things in perspective. Right, our natural response is not to view our lives in light of eternity. Right, our natural response is to say, this hurts. I don't like this. Get me out of it. And God's saying, you need to zoom out. And not have the tunnel vision where all you can see is that trial. He says in verse 9, let the lowly brother, I think he's talking to all of us, if you're in the midst of a trial, that's what it feels like. And what does he say to do? Boast in your exaltation. In other words, as hard as it is, and even if there's no light at the end of the tunnel, there is going to be an end. And even if the end is the day that you finally go to be with the Lord, how big is that trial when you compare it to eternity with the God who loves you and sent his son to die for you? You know, don't give in to kind of a victim mentality where whenever you come across a trial, you feel like, woe is me. If you know Christ, you don't feel sorry for yourself. Regardless of how hard life is, if you know that when this life is over, you're going to spend it with the King of Kings for all eternity, then anything else in this life seems light and momentary. Phil prayed it. Let's go to that verse, Romans 8, 18. Romans 8, 18. What does Paul say? And Paul knows suffering, by the way. He's not somebody that's never suffered a day in his life, so what does he know? No, he was someone who was tortured for the sake of Christ. He was stoned and left for dead. He spent nights in jail. And what does he say? What does that man say? I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is to be revealed to us. Here's what we usually do in trials, right? We think of it as at a scale. Like, God, he saved me. Well, that's pretty good. God saved me, okay. But this trial, this trial is not, I don't like it. So it's like you're kind of weighing it out. Which one's better? Like, did... Which one's more weighty? Did God save me or that this trial is hard? And what does Paul say? There's no comparison. Once you put what God did for you on one side of the scale, it's a weight of glory where nothing else can even move the scale. I mean, it doesn't matter what in this life you put on this side of the scale. It doesn't move this. It is so much weightier than anything that could possibly happen in this life. And James says that's the perspective you have to have in the midst of a trial. That what you have in Christ is so much better than 
any pain that you could be experiencing through a trial. And on the flip side, if you're not going through a trial, he says you still need to have an eternal perspective in verse 10. The rich needs to boast in what? His humiliation. Because like a flower, the grass, like a flower of the grass, he will pass away. And I think he's talking to Christians. I don't think he's talking to rich unbelievers. I think he's talking to rich Christians that you need to have an eternal perspective as well. You need to realize that everything that you have, all the riches that you have, the one day they're all going to fade away. Maybe sooner than you think. And so what should you do? I should boast in my humiliation. I should boast in the fact that I'm nothing. And my life will soon be over. So I'm not taking pride in my riches. I'm not taking pride in the fact that life is going well. And in fact, I might use those riches to bless somebody else whose life is not going very well right now. I'm going to use my riches for the sake of Christ because that's going to last. So adopt his perspective, an eternal perspective in the midst of your trials. And then lastly, recognize his goodness. Verse 12, Blessed is the man who remains steadfast under trial. For when he has stood the test, he will receive the crown of life, which God has promised to those who love him. So God's going to be the one who sustains you in the midst of a trial. And then when you get to the end of it, he's going to give you a crown for the work that he did in your life. But it's like, I'll take it. That sounds good. But there's another temptation that comes, or there's another factor that comes in, is that trials often lead to temptation. Look at verse 13. Let no one say when he is tempted, I am being tempted by God. For God cannot tempt, be tempted with evil, and he himself tempts no one. But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. Then desire, when it has conceived, gives birth to sin, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. Do not be deceived, my beloved brothers." It's natural that James would go here, right? Because what happens in the midst of a trial? Life is hard. When life is hard, what do we want to do? I want to make something enjoyable. I don't want it to be hard anymore. So I'm going to sin to stop this situation. Or I'm going to sin to forget about this situation. And James knows that that's real. But if you do that, what does he say? Don't think for a minute that God had anything to do with you falling to that temptation. Right? What's a trial? A trial is something good. It's something used by God, and your response is to be joy, and when your response is joy, he produces maturity. What's temptation? Temptation is something that comes not from God. It comes from within. And that temptation wants you to do what? To sin. And what's going to be the result of that? Death. So there's a different source. A trial comes from God. A temptation comes from within. There's a different response. A trial should have the response of joy. Temptation has the response of sin. And the result is different. Trials, the result is maturity. Temptation, the result is death. And so he says, totally reject the thought that temptation comes from God. Sometimes we'll sin, and then we'll get on the other side of it, and we'll think, God, how could you let me do that? 
right? We're driving to the liquor store. God, how could you be letting me do this right now? It's like, did God put the key in the car? Did God get in the car? Who's doing that? You're doing that. Not God. It's not possible for God to be tempted himself, and it's not possible for him to tempt anyone. Temptation comes from within. And that's a scary thought, actually. Because there's no devil made me do it in these verses. Right? It's not that the devil's throwing out all of these different things to you. It's that they're actually coming up from your own heart. You know, that's one of those, the horror movie thing, right? The call's coming from inside the house when it comes to sin. You don't have to, there's, there's enough enemies out there, but the real enemy is in here. What does he say in chapter four? James asked the question, what causes quarrels among you? My wife, my kids. No, what does he say? What causes quarrels among you? Don't they come from your own desires? And so we want to be very wise about when temptation comes. James is also making it very clear that, tempt- that sin is not an event. Sin is a process. No one just, at a snap of the finger, oh, I just, all of a sudden I sinned. What does he say happens? He says you have desires, and you stoke those desires. And eventually those desires give birth to sinful actions. And you cultivate those sinful actions so that they grow. And then what happens? They turn around and they kill you. That's exactly what the picture that James is drawing. And again, it's like something out of a horror movie. You know, the baby's born and then grows up to kill the parent. That's what he's saying sin is like. And so cut it off. As soon as that temptation comes, say, this isn't from God. I need to run away. This is something that my own heart wants me to do. And if I don't kill it, it's going to kill me. And so by God's grace, you run from temptation. But on the positive side, when you're in the midst of a trial, you realize that even the trial itself is a good gift from God. Look at verse 17. Every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights, with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. Notice what he says, every good gift and every perfect gift. When was the last time we heard that word in this letter? Verse 2 to 4, consider it joy. Knowing that the steadfastness, verse 4, will have its full effect, that you may be perfect and complete. In the context, when he's talking about every good and perfect gift coming down from the Father of lights, what are the good and perfect gifts that he's talking about? Your trials. Your trials are the good and perfecting gifts that are coming down from a loving Father for your good. He's doing you good. He is the same God that, from, that we just sang about, the wonders of our salvation, the very same God who saved us, out of his same heart is coming every good and perfecting gift of the trials in our life that are making us more like him. 
right? Verse 18, exhibit A of his goodness is the fact that he saved you. Of his own will, he wanted to do this. What did he do? He brought us forth by the word of truth that we should be a kind of first fruits of his creatures. I mean, how much do you love your salvation? The very same God who gave you the gift of salvation now gives you the gift of trials so that you could become more like him. And isn't that your greatest desire? I want to be like him. I mean, that was Jesus. He's the son who just is always receiving a pouring out of love from the father. And he so loves his father that he wants to be just like him. And why not with us? We're his children in the same way that the son is his child. We are in his family. And he has, as he's poured out love on us, shouldn't it be our desire? I want to do everything I can to look just like him. And that's what he's doing in your trials, molding you and shaping you and chiseling away, sanding off every rough edge so that you would look more like him. So consider it joy when you encounter various trials, knowing that this is what God's doing. Now feel free to ask him for wisdom. He delights to give it. If you want to obey him and follow after him in the midst of your trial, maintain an eternal perspective and don't give in to temptation, but trust in the goodness of God. Let's pray. Father, these are hard truths. And at the same time, they're glorious truths. When we think about the life of Job, when we think about our, maybe the, the missionary biographies that we've read, where people go through tremendous suffering, the loss of loved ones, the loss of their own lives, in many cases, James, who wrote this letter to us, lost his life for the sake of Christ. And when we hear these things, our tear, we do have tears that come to our eyes. But more and more, they're not tears at just how bad the suffering was. They're tears because we know that even those horrific sufferings are not worth comparing to the eternal weight of glory that's going to be revealed to us. Just like Job, who lost all things, and yet his life was a demonstration of how valuable you are. You use trials in our lives the very same way. So Lord, use these trials in our lives. Don't waste them. We know you won't, but use them. And Lord, help us to cooperate with you in the midst of them by not kicking against the things that you're doing in our lives, but receiving them with joy, even when it hurts, so that we might become more like you. We do want to be more fruitful. We want to be better fathers, mothers, parents, spouses, children. And Lord, we know that that process may involve trials. And so while we don't look for them, we're not going to go running after them. When they do come, help us receive them with joy and help us walk in your wisdom. Help us flee from temptation and help us trust in your goodness. Lord, this is impossible from a human perspective. There's nothing in us, in and of ourselves, that's going to help us do this. It has to be you through your spirit. And so we pray that you would fill us with your spirit. Give us the power to live like this. Give us joy and use us in each other's lives and in the world. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.